Finally, after more than two years of waiting, Paul has his day in court. And you remember that Paul is accused of treason against the Jewish nation. He is accused of heresy against the Jewish orthodoxy. And he is accused of crimes against Rome. In the first century, Rome meant power. And power meant Rome. And so is it that God, has God left Paul alone to face Rome? Has God abandoned Paul to suffer as a prisoner in chains? Does God abandon those who serve him most faithfully? Is God unable to save when we most need his help? Far from it, Paul's chains bear witness to the God who saves. And so the first thing we notice this morning is Paul is God's witness. Paul is God's witness. Now, according to church uh, tradition, from the writings that date to the end of the first century and the second century, apparently Paul was a short man. Uh, He was short, and we read that he was balding. Uh, He had very bushy eyebrow and a hooked nose and bowed legs. Um, that's what we know from church tradition. Not an impressive-looking figure. And if I were to add a conjecture, and I think this is a reasonable conjecture, I would think that his face and body were covered with badly healed scars from his many beatings. You know, the ways that he, he was imprisoned and beaten so many times. You know, those things leave a mark on your body. And here in this chapter, he stands in chains. And I don't know what prisoners wore in those days, but my guess is that, uh, that he was looking every bit like the man who has experienced much mistreatment, exposure, and even hunger, as he mentions elsewhere. And what a stark contrast it must have been looking at Paul on the one hand, standing in chains, and looking at those who are seated in judgment of him, Festus, Agrippa, and Bernice, and all the leading citizens who are sitting looking plump and comfortable, wearing, no doubt, the latest fashion, boasting their wealth and importance. But do you see here that Paul... Paul has more dignity than those who wore crowns of gold. And so we come to verse 1, Agrippa, and this is Agrippa II. He says to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Now just to remind ourselves a little bit of history. Herod the Great, he's the one who tried to kill the infant Jesus. His son, Herod Antipas, he's the one who beheaded John the Baptist. 
Herod the Great's grandson, Agrippa I, killed James. And now Paul is addressing Herod II. Some family, isn't it? That is why Paul says in verse 3 to Agrippa the king, you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Of course he was familiar. He was intimately familiar because his family played a central role in the events of the New Testament. And so Paul says, Therefore I beg you to listen to me patiently. And it becomes very clear as we listen to Paul's words that Paul's defense is equal part declaration of his innocence on the one hand and proclamation of Jesus Christ on the other hand. And what becomes very clear is that Paul is not merely a defendant in a trial. He is actually a witness. And of course, it must be so, because if you remember all the way back in Acts chapter 9, where we read about Paul's conversion, you remember how Jesus sends his servant Ananias to Paul. But Ananias has heard of Paul's reputation. He knows Paul's history, and Ananias objects. But what does Jesus tell Ananias? In chapter 9, verse 15, Jesus says to Ananias, Go, for he, Paul, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Jesus called Paul to be a witness to Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And do you see that is exactly what is happening in chapter 26? He is standing before Festus and his retinue, his people. He is standing before King Agrippa, and he is standing before the leading citizens of Israel, not merely to defend himself, but to bear witness of Jesus And if you understand that, you realize that in the truest sense, Paul is not the one on trial here. Rather, God has called Paul as his witness in order to put Festus, Agrippa, and all the unbelievers on trial. That's what's happening here. Paul, yes, he is that there is a sense in which he is defending himself, and that is an important part of this event. But at the same time, in the truest sense, it's Agrippa, it's Bernice, it's Festus, and it's all the unbelieving world that is on trial. And God has called Paul as his witness against them. And that helps us to understand what is going on Once again, you know, what a stark contrast. On the one hand, Paul, a very unimpressive figure. And I think if, if we were to pass Paul on the streets today, we would never give him a second glance. He would appear to us as a poor, perhaps even appear to us as a a homeless person, (laughs) the way that he's being presented here. Utterly unimpressive in chains. On the other hand, these impressive-looking people with their impressive titles. 
Paul has no power, and these people have all the power to determine Paul's future. And so, on the from that perspective, it does appear that God has abandoned Paul to face this powerful Rome all on his own. But when we realize that Paul is actually not the one on trial here, but he is God's witness to put the unbelieving world on trial, we realize that Paul's sufferings in ways that we would have never guessed or imagined was full of divine purpose. You know, the cruelty of suffering is that we often see no point in our suffering. And the cruelty of suffering is that when we are suffering, we feel abandoned by God. You know, if we could only see the meaning, if we could only see the purpose behind our suffering, we could almost endure anything. So it's important for us to know that in the New Testament, the accounts of Paul's ministry and his suffering, and of course, the suffering of all the believers, Peter, and even the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ, these things are not preserved, not only for the spiritual elites engaged in missionary work, but the records of their suffering are preserved for ordinary believers like you and I so that we might find encouragement in all our afflictions. And so the big picture of the New Testament's message about suffering is that while we suffer, we do not see the point. We do not understand the meaning or purpose. And while we suffer, it does feel as though God has abandoned us when we need him the most. But the message of the New Testament is that we cannot see it now. We cannot understand now. But our suffering, no less than the sufferings of Paul and Peter, the early Christians and Jesus, our suffering is also full of divine purpose. That is a part of God's message. And that is a part of Paul's witness to us. And that brings us to the second point. That Paul is a man saved by grace. Paul is a man saved by grace. So Paul is a witness. Witnesses give testimony. So what is Paul's testimony? Look at verses 7 and 8. Paul says, And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead. Paul is God's witness, and his testimony is that God raised Jesus from the dead, that there is a resurrection of the dead, and that Jesus has risen from the dead. And what's important for us to know is that the Jews of the first century, except the Sadducees, but Jews by and large all accepted and believed in the resurrection of the dead. It was part of their orthodox confession. 
and even Agrippa, the king, even he himself identified with the Jewish people and the faith of the Jewish people. And so the question is, why was it so hard for them to believe that Jesus rose from the dead? You know, if, if God created the world out of nothing, then God can certainly raise the dead. You know, so the the rejection of or unbelief of Jesus' resurrection, it really speaks to a deeply seated unbelief about who God is. Because if God did actually create the world out of nothing, then there is nothing contradictory, there's nothing difficult or nothing impossible that God would raise the dead. So, when we consider the resurrection of the dead purely from the vantage point of God's power, the resurrection of the dead is easy. It's a no-brainer. But having said that, the resurrection of the dead is troubling in a different sense. Now, if you remember what uh, Paul said in chapter 24, in verse 15, this is what Paul said. He said, there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. You know, it's actually possible to cheat justice in this life. If you are clever enough, if you are resourceful enough, you can get away with unspeakable things. It is possible, and sometimes people do it. It is possible to cheat justice in life. But you cannot cheat God's justice because God will raise lawbreakers. He will raise them that he may pour out upon them his judgment and wrath. You know, sometimes people object, how is it fair for finite sins that people committed in their lifetime to face eternal judgment? You know, the, the gravity of our sin depends upon the, the person or the object that has been damaged. You know, for example, if I were to walk into Walmart and maybe tore up one of their posters on sale in the, in the home office supply section, you know, all it would cost me is a few dollars. If you were to walk into the Louvre and tear up the Mona Lisa, you would incur considerably greater expense as a consequence of your actions. Why? It's all about the worth and the, the, the value of the thing that has been damaged by your actions. What if you sin and the people that are hurt are people that are made in God's image? What's the, the, the consequence? What's the worth of the damage? Incalculable. What if in our unbelief we sinned against the very God of very God and crucified him? Do you see? Our sins are measured according to the worth and the value of the person or the object that have been damaged by our actions. And that is why sin against the God is a matter of infinite, eternal 
wrath. And that's the justice of God. If you're clever enough, if you're resourceful enough, you may cheat justice in this lifetime. But God will raise you, and he will pour out to you eternal wrath. Now, as difficult as that is to hear, it's actually something we can buy into because justice actually makes sense to us. You know, isn't it fascinating? One of the first things that children learn to say is what? It's not fair, right? And one of the first things that children learn to say is also, but you promised. Why? Because they were born with an innate sense, understanding of justice. So justice makes sense, actually, that there should be consequences for what we do. What we cannot fathom is grace. That's what we cannot grasp. Because Paul says in chapter 24 that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And he says in in, in this passage that it is for this hope. Why is it strange to you? Why can't you believe that God raises the dead? But what does Paul mean when he says there will be a resurrection of the just when every person is a sinner before God? There is not one who is just before God. So what is he talking about when he says that there is a a resurrection of the just? And that's what grace says. That there is grace that turns sinners into saints. And there is grace that makes the guilty become just before God. And if you notice, this is actually the third time that Luke uh, reports Paul's conversion to us. First time was in chapter 9. And then it was uh, in chapter 22 where Paul made his uh, speech against the Jews who, who were uh, 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 trying to beat him to death. And then once again in this passage in chapter 26, you get the sense When Luke reports his conversion three times, you get the sense that this is a central message of his book. And Paul's conversion serves largely two purposes. One, it establishes Paul's innocence against the charges of treason and heresy. You see, Paul, in his conversion, he comes to realize that he was wrong to persecute Christians and Christ because God promised beforehand to the fathers, to Moses, that he would send his son. So when Paul was persecuting the believers, he was opposing God. And so Paul came to realize that in order to be truly be faithful to the faith of the fathers, to be truly faithful to the Old Testament scriptures, he has to obey the voice of heaven and serve And worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul, through his conversion testimony, is is declaring his innocence. That he is doing nothing but obeying the God of the fathers. And that he is proclaiming nothing more, nothing less than the hope of the fathers and every Orthodox Jew. So that's one large purpose his conversion testimony serves. But there is another And perhaps this is more important. 
In his conversion testimony, Paul shows himself a sinner saved by grace. Paul persecuted Christians. And to his great horror, he realizes that when he persecuted the Christians, he was actually persecuting Christ himself. And it horrifies him to discover that Jesus was so present in the sufferings of his people that whatever Paul did to the least of Jesus' followers, he did to Jesus. That Jesus was so present in the lives of people, that he had not abandoned them, that he had not forsaken them, but he was bearing their shame and their pain with them. And Paul, to his great horror, realizes that he, he wasn't merely persecuting people, but the Lord himself. Now, of course, what initially struck him to his great horror becomes a tremendous source of comfort later. As he himself suffers, he realizes and he remembers that Jesus is with him. But what Paul's conversion story establishes is the fact that Paul deserved to be shut out of God's kingdom. And Paul deserved God's wrath. But Paul continues in verses 22 and 23. What the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. So the grace that Paul has come to learn, the grace that Paul has come to embrace, is that Jesus' death and resurrection change sinner to saint. And Jesus' death and resurrection exchange our guilt with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And in Jesus, God's enemies become his children. And because of Jesus, sinners are made saints. Those who were once guilty are declared just, and we will be raised to life and glory. That, that is Paul's testimony, that he is a sinner saved by grace. And that brings us to the third and the last point. Paul is vindicated by Roman authorities. He is vindicated by Roman authorities. Now notice that three results follow from Paul's defense. Verse 24 Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. The justice, the divine justice that survives our death, that persists beyond our death, the grace of Jesus Christ towards sinners, these things strike many people as either foolishness or madness. And so Festus, listening to Paul, says, you've lost your mind. You've gone mad. But Paul answers, I am speaking true and rational words. This is what God has done, and this is what God says. Take these words to heart. 
and believe. So that's the first outcome. Paul, uh, Festus calling Paul mad, but Paul answering in response, this is what God has done. This is what God says. Listen and believe. Two, verse 27, Paul asks a question. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. If Agrippa really believed the scriptures as he professed, then, because Paul has established so clearly that Jesus, everything that Jesus said and everything that he did was according to the scriptures, if Agrippa really believed the scriptures as he professed, then he must submit to Jesus. But Agrippa, he cannot afford to say that he does not believe the scriptures to justify his unbelief in Jesus. So this was a very pointed question. Paul saying to Agrippa, you say you believe. I know you believe. So what does Agrippa do? He evades the question, verse 28. In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? You see, we saw something about Agrippa's life last week. Agrippa was someone who happily straddled the fence between scripture and worldliness. It was certainly politically necessary for him to align himself with the Jewish people and the faith of the Jewish people because not even Agrippa could get away uh, by wholesale rejecting the scriptures. But at the same time, he led an ungodly, immoral life. And he's a conflicted figure, whether for political convenience or whether there was part of him in his heart that could not let go of the scriptures. He straddled the fence, and he was not ready to give up either. He could not give up his profession of belief, and he could not give up his sinful life. So he evades the question. And Paul answers in verse 29, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. You see, Agrippa's indecision and his evasion show him to be a man in bondage. But Paul, though he wears the chains, he is free. Are you free? Three, verses 31 and 32. After hearing Paul's defense, they discuss among themselves, Bernice, Agrippa, and Festus, and they say, this man, this man is doing nothing to deserve death, or imprisonment. This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So Paul's innocence has been clearly established, not before one or two people, but by everyone who heard his case. They were convinced of it, but they cannot now appear to infringe on a Roman citizen's right to appeal to Caesar, and they have to send Paul to Rome. And so they fulfill 
what Jesus said to Paul in chapter 23, verse 11. Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. In the first century, Rome meant power, and power meant Rome. We know better. Jesus is power. You see, do you see that what he said will happen is happening? Do you see that it is Jesus' will that is done? It is his people that are saved, that are kept, and it is his people that will be raised from the dead. Jesus is power. And so I urge you, receive and serve Jesus, and his power will set you free. In Jesus' name, amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your instructions this morning, and we pray that as Paul has so faithfully and clearly borne testimony of who Jesus is and what he has done, that we may humbly and eagerly receive his testimony, the testimony of your Son and of your scriptures, and know Jesus Christ, not merely in our head as a notion, but to truly know him as our Redeemer, as our Savior, as our friend, and as our shepherd. And I pray, O oh Lord, that your people here would find great comfort and hope knowing that, that it is you that is guiding them, leading them, and shepherding them through all the trials and afflictions of life. And in the end, you will show them you will show us all the glory of your power to save and to glorify. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.